thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Tonight we're going to conclude our study of the seven letters. Uh, I would like to remind you uh, that this is going to be our last Bible study for the year and that we will resume on um, Wednesday, January 10, 2007. So please pass on the word to those who are not present with us today. Today also is the Feast of uh, St. Nicholas, the Wonder Worker. He was a bishop of uh, Mira in Lycia. He died on s- December 6th today uh, in 345 or 352 AD. It is not uh, really uh, known wh- on which year he died. Um, he is one of the most popular saints in, uh, in the Orthodox and in the Catholic Church. To the best of our knowledge, he was born at Perara, a city of Lycia in Asia Minor. In his youth, he made a pilgrimage to Egypt and Palestine. Shortly after his return, he became bishop of Mira. He was cast into prison during the persecution of Diocletian. He was released after the accession of Constantine. He's patron saint of Greece, Russia, the Kingdom of Naples, Sicily, Lorraine, the Diocese of Liège in Belgium, many cities in Italy, Germany, Austria, and Belgium, Campen in the Netherlands, Corfu in Greece, Freiburg in Switzerland, and Moscow in Russia. He is a patron of mariners, patron saints of mariners, merchants, bakers, travelers, and children. His relics are still preserved in the church of San Nicola in Bari, up to the present day an oily substance known as Mana di San Nicola, which is highly valued for its medicinal powers, is said to flow from them. And uh, as you know, he is um, the real Santa. What we're going to do tonight is first conclude the section on Laodicea, which are the last two verses, 320 and 322. Then go back to the question of the name. I've done a little bit more research, and there may be a couple of things we can say about the new name. And then have some closing notes that, puts, that put the section of Revelation in the context of, the, of all of Scripture instead of it being only in the context of the book of Revelation. I think it will not only shed light on the rest of Scripture, uh, it will also illuminate Revelation through the rest of Scripture. You will see that what we saw so far is not peculiar or only special to the book of Revelation, but it is across all of the New Testament. 
I can't cover all of it. I just picked some passages to show you how this works. And then finally, uh, explain how this section introduced the next, which is what we're going to tackle when we come back on the 10th. So let's go back now to Laodicea and continue from verse, um, chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. These are very beautiful words that the Lord pronounces, and their words are full of hope. Remember, Laodicea is in a really uh, very poor situation. The Lord considers it to be dead. Yet he says, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And he who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the, the Spirit says to the churches. Um, the first, first I'd like to read to you two quotations from two Protestant theologians, which I thought are very interesting and applicable to this text. Moons, in his famous book, The Revelation, writes beautifully, In their blind self-sufficiency, they had, as it were, excommunicated the risen Lord from their congregation. In an act of unbelievable condescension, he requests permission to enter and establish fellowship. Um, it, it is really, it is indeed uh, a point of meditation to think about the Lord's humility, which is not something that we spend too much time thinking about, especially in this time of Christian, Christmas. The word condescension is very old. It's actually patristic. The notion of uh, the condescension of the Lord is the notion that he emptied himself of his divinity so as to be like, a, like the rest of us, save in sin. And what that means is the, the notion we, we talked about a number of times that the Lord wished to save us through his humanity. When he came on earth as a man, he wished to be a baby. He grew up in the womb of Our Lady. He was born, and he was just like every other baby, needing someone to take care of him. And then he grew up. He was instructed in the faith by Our Lady and St. Joseph, like other, like other children. He allowed that to happen, not as a sign of weakness, but as a sign of humility, and also as a sign of strength, to show us what is the true glory of our nature. Because if anything, the greatest tragedy of the original sin is that it blinds us to our true glory, to that which is ours, which was intended to be ours from the beginning of all time. And in doing so, the Lord wanted to show us what is our portion in his divine plan. So it's not a sign of weakness on God's part when he says, I stand and I knock. It is a sign of humility on his part simply because he wants to show us that he, he will enter with a full relationship with us. He wants to show us what our humanity is capable of when it is raised to its true dignity. It can interact with God. It is made to be satisfied only in God. And that is a point that is really very important for us to meditate. And I pointed that to you a number of times the, the painting of, of uh, um, Sister Faustina that the Lord commanded her to paint, the one that is behind me right now, Jesus, I trust in you, you can see he's standing by the door. That's the door. Right. That's the door. So 
The other quotation I'd like to bring to your attention, because here he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I'd like you to hear what uh, Chilton, who is actually Calvinist, has to say about that. In his book uh, titled The Days of Vengeance, Chilton writes, Reformed worship tends to be overly intellectual, centered around preaching. In the name of being centered around the word, it is actually often centered around the intellect. We must take seriously the biblical doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the sacrament of the Eucharist. We must return to the biblical pattern of worship centered on Jesus Christ, which means the weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper, as well as instruction about its true meaning and efficacy. We must abandon the rank Platonism which informs our bare intellectualized worship and return to a truly corporate liturgical worship characterized by artistic beauty and musical excellence. For it should be obvious that in this verse, he, meaning the Lord, is extending to the church an offer of renewed communion with himself. The very heart and center of our fellowship with Christ is at his table. The most basic and most profound offer of salvation in Christ is Christ's offer to dine with us. In Holy Communion, we are genuinely having dinner with Jesus, lifted up into his heavenly presence, and moreover, we are feasting on him. This comes from a Calvinist. Now, clearly there's some of the words that he uses, which we use, that don't have the same meaning, because Calvinists will not agree with transubstantiation, or will agree with consubstantiation. Nevertheless, those words, as you heard, are beautiful, as far as the Catholic faith is concerned, and sums up, in a very eloquent manner, the reason and purpose of the Mass. And the Lord says, He who opens, I will enter, and I will come into him, and I will dine with him. If you really think about it, it's really kind of awkward or, or, or quirky that of all the things that God could do with somebody, he chooses to dine with him. God could have said a whole bunch of things. Things that we would have preferred. I will come in and I will endow him with power. I will come in and I will heal him. I will come in and give him the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. I will come in and I'll turn him divine. I will come in and I'll set him higher than the angels. A whole bunch of stuff that we would have liked. And yet he says, I will come in and I will dine with him. And that, as Chilton says, points to the corporeal, the incarnate part of our faith. Our faith is not purely intellectual. And that could be a good verse for some of you if you ever have somebody who tells you, I don't need to go to church. I just can pray in my own house. Well, that's what you're missing. It's that Eucharist, the meal. That's what you're missing when you sit in your house and pray all by yourself. A couple of other points that I'd like to make here. First, note that the Lord says, I stand and I knock. All right? The, the Greek tense is present durative. What that means to us is that it is an action that is occurring right now in the present where he's standing and there's a duration attached to it waiting at the door and he's knocking. What does that suggest to you? Does that suggest, in any way, shape, or form, the second coming, the end of the world? All right? Again, 
other, another very clear indication that the purpose of the book of Revelation is not primarily about the second coming. It is about what was going on in those churches when John was alive. Obviously, the moral sense allow us to apply that text to our own lives today. And we should do so, absolutely. But it's only secondary. We would do well to remember that it is, its primary meaning is in the context of the church of Laodicea, to whom that letter was addressed, and to the churches at large. Right. So again, um, I'm repeating, I'm, I am pointing out and I'm repeating these things to you so that we can form our mind to think appropriately about the book of Revelation, not as this special book set aside that deals with the end times, and that's its purpose, rather as part of the whole of Scripture, as part of the New Covenant, of the, test, of the New Testament, where it has a specific role to play, and we're discovering what that role is as we proceed through the whole book. That there is a direct reference to the Eucharist is supported by the usage of the word supper, right? or dying, as I said. Both of these words in the Greek refer to the word supper that was used by John in, uh, in chapter 13, verse 2 and 4, when he's speaking about the Last Supper, or the institution of the Eucharist, as well as 1 Corinthians 11, 20, 21, and 25, where St. Paul is speaking about the institution of the Eucharist. Both of them use the same key word, supper, or dying. Right? So, definitely, it's a Eucharistic element here. Christ is not about to come in and then sit with us and eat pizza. Right? It's not about a purely, purely materialistic or physical supper. It is one that has a spiritual component to it. Right? One that is very important. Verse 22 holds a promise of, of a share in the judgment of Christ over the world. That's the reward. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says in the churches. To sit on Christ on his throne is, again, we have to be careful with the image. We have a, a tendency to stick to literal images. And then we get a very awkward sense. Because then we would have to understand how, you know, 200,000 people can sit with Christ on his throne. That would be a very big throne. Right? So you can see that if you stress the image physically, it breaks down. It's not like there's this long queue and Christ is sitting like Santa and we come in one by, one, one by one, we sit in his lap on his throne and then we do a little bit of judgment and then we move on. And next, okay, so... We have to be careful with the image. When you try to stress the image or scale it and it breaks, it means you're not handling right. Let go. You have to be more um, supple, more flexible. To sit on his throne is another way of saying to share in his power. It is to share in his power of judgment. That's very interesting because... Remember that Christ gave to his church on earth a power of mercy, power of forgiveness, power of truth. Right? That's the role of the church, to keep the deposit of the faith, 
to proclaim the good news and to make disciples of all nations. To bind and to loose on earth, but not to judge. Meaning, not to declare heaven or hell. That is not up to the church to do. It is something reserved for Christ and Christ alone. And yet here he seems to be sharing that particular power of his with us. How, do we, how are we to understand this? Does this mean that when the final judgment, let's say, occurs, Christ sits on his throne and there's a bunch of us around him acting as his advisors? Or does it mean that he actually gets up, puts us on the throne, and then says, go ahead. From 5 to 5.30, it's your turn. You judge these people. The second image seems really silly until you start thinking about Adam. I've mentioned, I think, a couple of times when I told you that Genesis looms large as a background to all this text. Okay? What did God do in Genesis? What did he bring to Adam? All the animals. And what did Adam do? Name them. We're going to talk about the name a little bit later. He named them. And scripture says, whatever Adam named, that was the name. Right? So effectively, God, I mean, Adam performed an act of judgment on those animals. Because in the name, there's characteristics about each animal. As he perceived them, he named them. And God accepted that. Not only that, because you might argue with me and say, well, well those are animals. When the world dies, the animals die, and so it doesn't matter. What happened after the fall? Adam did something else. He gave a name also to whom? Eve. Eve. He named Eve. He named her Eve. Before the fall, she was called a woman. After the fall, he said, she will be Eve, the mother of all the living. So, what I, the, the, the thought that I just pr proposed to you a little bit earlier about sharing with the judgment of, of, of Christ, I think has an element of truth that is found in Genesis. And so what does that mean? How do we reconcile both? That Number one, Scripture says very clearly, none of us can know the heart of man. Only the Holy Spirit and only God can. Not, not even us can really know our heart. Said differently, we don't fully understand our nature. And I doubt that we will ever will as creature, fully understand who we are. Only God understands us fully. And that's why he can be the just judge, because he fully understands us. He knows everything that needs to be known. We don't. After our death, and in our glorified state, we're still creatures. We're not creators. Therefore, we'll retain those limitations. God will, clarify, will, will, will illuminate our mind, but still we retain those limitations. Um, in the encyclical declaring the assumption of Our Lady in Heaven, the Pope stated that God raised Our Lady to such a level of glory that not even she can understand. Not even Our Lady understands that level of glory to which God raised her. So there's always limitation. Hence, we cannot understand this text as sharing in the judgment of Christ as us sitting and judging people. The way to understand it is that the judgment of Christ shall be fully understood by us and we will give complete assent to it. 
he will share with us his judgment and we will give complete assent with it and we give him glory for it is that important? is that important? practically speaking well it may not be as important right now if let's say God is, is judging say someone in in a remote country from us somebody with whom we have absolutely no dealing and no attachment but what if he's judging our children our spouse does it now suddenly seem more important that we share in that judgment alright yeah it is it is so to the extent that we have been faithful to him, to that extent we will share in his judgment. The apostles, of course, will sit with him and judge the twelve tribes of Israel, the whole of the church. That's an extent of their glory. But to the extent we've been, we shared with him, to that extent we will share in his judgment. So, effectively, dining with him on earth prepares us to be conformed to his judgment. Dining with him on earth has an effect on our intellect where we can start to understand things and see them according to God's way. We see them as God sees them, not as man sees them. And we call this wisdom. We call it wisdom. And the, the um, ultimate wisdom is to share in God's judgment and be one with him. All right, let's turn now back to um, Philadelphia, where last week we were looking at the new name. The Lord said, He who conquers and will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, never shall he go out of it. I'm reading from verse 12 in chapter 3. Never shall he go out of it, and... I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. And we were wondering about this own new name. So I did a little bit more research, and I have some thoughts to propose to you. I mean, they're not entirely satisfactory, but they shed some light on, on this particular text. So, first, um, the word name occurs 749 times in scripture according to the US bishops translation of scripture I have not looked through every single one of those um, having said that there are some interesting references that shed some light where the name is the person there's no distinction between the name and the person We've seen some of that earlier on when I told you that in heaven we receive a new name which really describes who we are. Right? Really describes who we are. Uh, those of you who, may, who, who, who might have read The Lord of the Rings might be, might be mindful of the ants where when Pippin asks the ant, Treebird, what's his name? And he said, well, I can't tell you my name. It's a long story. Basically, the name of that, cre that being summarizes his entire life and he's a very old being that's the biblical concept of a name that in the name there is the entire person now if you think about the name of God what did God say in his name? 
I am who I am. I am that I am. Or I am the being one. Right? Well, the name is, is God. And that's why the Jews refrain from pronouncing him. Because pronouncing the name of God is like pronouncing God. And then we're very careful about pronouncing that name. And that's why we say do not use the name of the Lord in vain. Because that name is effectively God. Substantially speaking, it's God. So when one uses the name of the Lord in vain, he's actually not just using the name of the Lord in vain, he's using God in vain. So you can see the enormity of that sin and why it deserves, uh, why it's called grave and why it can be mortal. If you then keep that in mind, you kind of begin to understand or shed some light on this. I will give him my new name. Well, what is his new name? What was his old name? In a sense, his old name was his human name. The name that we knew him when he was on earth. Jesus. Right? Yeshu. That was his old name. What is his new name? Well, effectively, his new name is the Lord God Jesus Christ, who is God and man. Right? Notice what I'm doing now. I'm starting to unravel who he is. And I keep on going, right? Two natures two wills joined together in hypostatic union, etc., and on and on and on. And all of that is his new name. So, of course, when he says, I will give him, or write on him my new name, I will write on him my new name, he doesn't mean he's going to take, you know, you know, three or four DVDs and fill them with words and then somehow write them on us. He means something much deeper than that. Right? He means that we will know him as he truly is. We will know him as his name is. By writing his name on us, we are the creature, he's the creator, he conforms us to himself. And he, get, he makes us know him as he truly is. The name of my God, the name of the New Jerusalem, which is the church in my own new name. Right? So, the name of God, the Trinity... The Jerusalem, which is the church, and his own name as priest and mediator. So effectively you have the fullness of the Catholic truth written on that person. I'll impart upon that person knowledge of the truth, of who God is as a trinity, of who I am as true God and true man, and of the church. That's what I will do. All right? That, I think, sheds some light on this text. Now, there are some supporting texts which I'll quote for you. You'll find, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 56, verse 5 and following, the following, <coughs> the, um, this text. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs, <coughs> excuse me, to the eunuchs, eunuchs, who observe my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters, an eternal, imperishable name will I give them. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, ministering to Him, loving the name of the Lord and becoming His servants, all who keep the Sabbath free from profanation and hold to my covenant, them I will bring to my holy mountain and make joyful in my house of prayer. Their holocaust sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So here you see the name of the Lord and the name of the New Jerusalem given to 
all those who keep the name of the Lord. Now, the, the reason why in this particular text um, uh, eunuchs, eunuchs are mentioned is because they were, uh, uh, of course, considered to be um, unclean and outside of the covenant. And here Isaiah is making this incredible prophecy that those who are considered to be unclean I would bring into the, my house and I will offer holocaust. Who offers holocaust? Priests. They'll become priests. I mean, what a, th that is an amazing prophecy. Right? And by the way, it's one of the foundations for celibacy in the church. The eunuchs. Okay? So we see here the use of that name as given, which is imparting knowledge, imparting uh, understanding of who the Lord is, because he gives them the name, meaning he brings them into his fold, into the church. In Isaiah chapter 62, verse 2 and following, For Zion's sake I will not be silent, for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet, until her vindication shines forth like the dawn, and her victory like a burning torch. Nations shall behold your vindication, and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, pronounced by the mouth of the Lord. You shall be a glorious crown in the, land, in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem held by your God. So again, he parts upon Jerusalem a new name, which he pronounces. And remember, when God says in Genesis, what happens? It is. There's no difference in God saying and being. That's because he's a creator. There's a huge difference for us. Right? Where we might say something, but it doesn't mean it happens. I can say, I wish, I, I can eat, I'm, I wish I'm eating an ice cream right now. Not going to happen. Okay? If God said that, he'd be eating an ice cream right now. That's the difference between being a creator and a creature. His word is. Mine is potentially. Potentially only. And in Ezekiel 48.35, Ezekiel 48.35, read, the perimeter of the city is 18,000 cubits. This is the description of the New Jerusalem in the vision of Ezekiel. The name of the city shall henceforth be, the Lord is here. Right. Again, the notion that the name indicates God. The Lord is here. That's the name of the city. This is what New Jerusalem means. The Lord is here. It's his presence. So in all these things, the name points to, number one, a real deep knowledge of God, not purely intellectual, but a level of all my being. I will know God as he is. Number two, indicates the essence of the person. And those two combined makes us to understand that what God will do is that he will give to those who conquer a real knowledge of himself, not purely intellectual, but shared. All right. So, across the seven letters that we read so far, and we've studied, we've seen that in every single case, the letter followed the covenantal lawsuit. And there were blessings and curses. The important point so far is that no action has taken place. This may sound obvious, but it's important to highlight. Nothing has happened so far. Go back and read the seven letters, you'll see that nothing has happened. The Lord 
is, in essence, uttering a prophecy. Given that it's the Lord, it is not a prophecy, but it is something about what will take place. It hasn't taken place yet. It is something that will take place. That's important for us to keep in mind because it's going to tie into what happens in the next section, the section dealing with the seals. And I, I do recommend that you read that section. We're going to deal with that next when we come back. And you will watch as you go through the seals that again, nothing happens except the sealing of the, of the elect. But no other action takes place as the seals are being opened. There are angels being sent forth to do stuff, but nothing is done. The action starts when we get um, to the trumpets and continues through the, through the cups. So what you will see is that right now the Lord has spoken very clearly and specifically to his church. Nowhere else does he spoke, speaks this way in all of the book. You will not find him speaking to other people this way. The language becomes obscured and hidden. But nonetheless, the pattern is discernible. We're going to be looking at warnings as the seas are being opened. Just as he gave his church warnings, the same thing will happen with the seals. And then when we start going through the trumpets, he's, we go through the chastisement. And chastisement applies to all, unequivocally. Whether you're a part of the church or you're outside of the church, you're either in the covenant or you're not. That's a demarcation. And that's how the, the chastisement hits. And then after the chastisement, we go through the actual uh, judgment of the world and then the appearance, the revelation of the bride. So really, that's the structure of the book. Warnings given to the church first in very clear language. It requires study. We have to understand the context. But nonetheless, we can make up the, 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 the significance of it. Then warnings given to the world in obscured and hidden language. And then the chastisement and followed by the judgment. And right after that, all of this is leading to the revelation of the bride. That's, that's the, the structure of the book. We have work to do to be able to understand why this is so. But I think there are some passages in the scripture that will allow us to, to see that clearly. And I'll, I'll give you some of those references. Before I do, I do that, though, I'd like to point out a couple of other important points. So the first one is the covenant that I just mentioned to you, and, and it, it explains to you how this ties with the rest of the book. The second is that the core message of the letters, the core message of the letters is not individual. It is not about what every individual will do. It's about all the churches. It's corporal. It's about all the churches. What is the, the fundamental message that is given to them? Well, number one, go back and do the works of love you were, you were doing before. Works of love entails loving God and loving neighbor. So loving God and loving neighbor, meaning receiving, meaning announcing the good news, proclaiming the good news, and helping others to convert. Right? 
And this, particular, this in particular would apply to Ephesus, who has lost its first love, and to Laodicea, who is dead, or not doing the works of love. The second one is to abstain from emperor worship and its attendant liturgies. And this applies to the followers of Balaam, Jezebel, and the Nicolaitans. All three of them are, in one way or the other, compromising the faith with emperor worship. They're getting into emperor worship in order to save themselves. And the third point is that all churches are called to patient endurance and to hold to what they have received, yet expecting the imminent coming of the Lord, the imminent revelation of the Lord. He didn't tell them, hold on to what you have till all of you are dead and I'll reward you in the next life. He doesn't say that. Hold on to what you have, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. There's an imminent coming of the Lord. They have to hold on to what they have because of that imminent coming. Now we have not yet completely explained why there's this imminent coming and what it means. We're going to hit on that as we move on to the next section. But what we can say right now is to, to, to you know, put it in a broader context is this. The church has been established in Pentecost or at the cross. Same thing. But the church is still, on the one hand, tied to the temple. On the other hand, opposed by temporal powers, which is Rome. So the church is persecuted by the temple and tied to it still. And the church is opposed by the temporal power, which is Rome. Those are the two main obstacles. Those are the two main hindrance for the the actual establishment, the stable establishment of the church on, on earth. So what is God to do? What is Jesus Christ going to do in this judgment? He's going to do two things. Number one, he's going to remove the temple and close it. And number two, he's going to allow his church to take over the temporal power, establishing the church in Rome. Those are the two actions that summarize the judgment of God on the world. And we will see those clearly throughout this book, how this actually happens. Underlying all of what I just told you is the Council of Jerusalem. The Council of Jerusalem. Nothing in Scripture happens, nothing in the life of the church happens coincidentally. The Council of Jerusalem happened first, and that's in Acts 21, and I recommend you go back and, Acts 15, I'm sorry, and you read back that part. But in it, in it, the, 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 the church asked the followers, all the Catholics, to do what? To, to abstain from pollution from idols, unlawful marriages, meat of strangled animals, and blood. All four activities which are connected with emperor worship and pagan worship. So there was a clear teaching from the church to abstain from all these things. And the other important teaching was what? To receive the Gentiles without forcing them to go through the uh, circumcision, right? Meaning the Gentiles can be full-fledged members of the church without having to go through the temple. Those are the two teachings of the Council of Jerusalem. 
We don't need the temple to be a Christian. You don't have to go three times, three years to the temple for the feasts of the temple. You do not have to pay tithes to the temple. You don't have to support the temple. You don't have to be a Jew before you be a Christian. You can be a Christian directly. That's the first teaching. The second, practical, you have to abstain from all these things to be a Catholic. And those are the two issues that those churches were facing and the church as, at, at large was facing. And that's why you understand why effectively the judgment we're speaking about is the consummation, the bringing about in the reality of earth of the Council of Jerusalem. The Council was set, was established, and it's set in motion a set of activities which are heavenly to bring about its realization, which the apostles could not realize on their own. Because as soon as you say, I'm going to admit Gentiles in the church without having to, be, to go through the temple, you are, you are going to incur the wrath of the temple. And as soon as you say, you, know, you have to abstain from these things, you're going to incur the wrath of Rome. Both of these, the beast from the sea, Rome, and the beast from the land, the temple, are going to come against you. And their forces way beyond the capacity of the church, which is poor, small, persecuted. That's why Christ comes in judgment. Can we see this in the rest of Scripture? Is it only in the book of Revelation? Let's turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 16 to 32. In Romans chapter 1, We'll read the following from St. Paul. I'd like you to read it with the light that the book of Revelation brings on the text. I think it, it will um, illuminate it in a, very, in, one, in, one, in, one, in a very interesting way. So verse 16 through 32. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 through 32. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Why does Paul say, I am not ashamed? He doesn't explain that. You won't find it in this letter. He doesn't say, I'm telling you I'm not ashamed because of the following. He assumes that his readers know why he's saying I'm not ashamed. The book of Revelation shed light on this. And tells us right away that the Romans were having the same issues. Emperor worship and all the rest. And they had to hide their, their, their faith and compromise so that they could fit in. So he tells them, I'm not ashamed. You see how the book of Revelation illuminates the letters of Paul and others because it gives us a context from which we can operate. Without it, why is he saying I'm not ashamed? Then we might say something very general. Well, he's saying I'm not ashamed because, well, because he just had to say it. All right? Now, read the rest of the text covenantally with the covenant in mind and it will illuminate many, many things for you. For the wrath of God is revealed 
from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth is revealed when is it going to be revealed right behold I am coming soon all right now wrath is because of what what brings up wrath pardon Wickedness, which means what? Sin, which means what? Yes, judgment because of what? Because of the covenant. Because of the covenant. Those are the curses of the covenant being triggered. And that's what Paul is going to be talking about in the next section. The curses of the covenant. But if you know the covenant, what is, he, what is, what is that implied? The other part of it that he's not talking about. The blessings. All right? The blessings. The blessings are implied. So when he says, for the wrath of God is revealed, what is implied? The blessing of God is revealed. You see, if you read it covenantally, the text makes a lot more sense. Because otherwise, it looks like Paul is all about vengeance and anger and you know, fire and brimstone. But no, he's focusing on one part of the covenant, the curses, but he implies the other, the blessings. Okay? When you read it covenantally, it balances the text out for you. You don't leave another part out. You simply say, okay, he's got that in mind. Why? Because these people in Rome, apparently, are doing what the rest of them are doing in Asia. They're compromising their faith. And now he's going after them. So if you notice... The structure of every letter was that there was an introduction, who Christ is, he does that. Blessed, you know, he does that in the introduction of this letter. Then, in those letters that we read, the Lord gives them an assessment of that situation. I know your works. Paul implies that. He doesn't tell them, I mean, he doesn't tell us, but he seems to know what's going on. Then the Lord says, repent or I'll do those, those things to you. Paul jumps right in. And the Lord says, for those who do these things, I will reward them this way. Paul doesn't talk about it, it's implied. You get it? It's the same structure of the letter, but he chooses to focus on specific parts of the covenant. It's again a covenantal lawsuit. Now, here's, see how the, the text works for you once you put that in context. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, has, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So obviously, it seems that among Romans there are those who are skeptic, who doubt the existence of God. Right? It is a defide dogma of the Catholic Church that man, that man can be arrived that man can arrive at the knowledge of God through his reason. That's a dogma. Based on this text. Either through nature or through introspection, reason of man leads him to the knowledge of God. Not the Trinity. Not the Trinity. That is supernatural revelation. We cannot arrive to it through our reason alone. We need God to reveal that to us. But the existence of God as creator, we can arrive to it through our reason. And so obviously there are those who are denying God. Okay, so you can infer what Paul is dealing with by what he's not saying. 
So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Now, Paul does something very important to us. He reveals to us how the covenant curses and blessings are triggered. They are always proportional and in response to our dealings with God. They did not use their reason to understand or come to the conclusion that God exists. As a result, the curses are triggered, and what happens to them? They become futile in their thinking. Alright? They become, their mind has been darkened as a result of them re, reneging God and dishonoring Him. Their mind is darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles. Who are those who exchanged the existence of God for mortal man or animals or reptiles? What is, who exchanged the image of God for a mortal man? Think in context. No, 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 no. Yes, what did they do? Emperor worship. Emperor worship. That's what he's talking about. Right? They're worshipping men. And then they have animals and all these other gods that they made up. You get it? That's the context. It's pagan worship and emperor worship. That's what he's talking about. Therefore God gave... So what happens? Because they have distorted the image of the true God in their mind, God triggers the curses of the covenant, and what does he do? He gives them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Again, the curse is proportional to the sin. They, they replace God by mortal creatures, and because we are all made in the image of God, whatever we do to God in our minds happen to us. That's how it gets applied. Think about the blessings. The exact opposite takes place. Right? So you really have a school of the covenant in this letter. He explains to you how it works. So that's what's going on here. They are now full of lusts. And what do they do? Okay, and dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and, save and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving it in their own persons, the due penalty for their error. So, because man is made in the image of God, as long as man remains true to the covenant, his own relationship remains true to his nature. All right? So marriage is the image of God. Man and woman together form the image of God. If, God in his, if man in his mind deforms the image of God, rejects God, then his relationship is deformed, is rejected as consequence of the covenant. You understand? 
On the other hand, if man is true to God, if he's godly, if he loves God, and worships him in truth and in spirit, what happens in his family? His family gets ordered in truth and in spirit. You understand? Because of the blessings of the covenant. We reflect the image of God. If I am and my wife are true to that image in our relationship with God, it will also be true in our relationship with one another and with our family. Do you understand? Paul is not saying anything different from what Christ said in those letters. He's expanding on it. He explains it. He's more analytical, if you will. Greek in his thinking. John will be more Semitic in his thinking. But it's the same thing. They're talking about the same thing. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a base mind and to improper conduct. So you observe, they did not acknowledge God. Consequence of this, base conduct. They don't acknowledge each other. They don't acknowledge, they're not being acknowledged. If you don't acknowledge God, you will not be acknowledged. You will be less than what you are. All right? And, and you don't necessarily understand the relationship between, what it, between the cause and the consequence unless you have man and woman as image of God and the covenant linking God with us. And the mechanics of the covenant triggering those curses or their blessings. They were filled with all manner of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity. There are gossips, Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Disobedient to parents. And, I, and you've heard me say this multiple times when I told you that this notion of teenagers that we didn't have before, and how people are afraid of teenagers, and how teenagers misbehave and, don't, and show disrespect to their parents, is a direct curse because of the parents not being true to the covenant, especially when they are contracepting. So when they contracept, Romans apply. All that text apply. And one of the consequences is what? You heard it. Disobedient children. Obedient children is not natural. Original sin works against that. Original sin in every one of us. And original sin brings us to disorder, not to order. Therefore, original sin brings us to disobedience. It's only the life of the Spirit that brings us to obedience. It's not natural. It's, a, it's what? It's a blessing of the covenant. That's what obedient children are. A blessing of the covenant. No difference between what is being said here. It's expanded. More detail. Longer letter, and what is read in the book of Revelation. Same thing. Again, 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 12. I won't necessarily go through the whole analysis of it, but I'll just read it to you, and I think you'll find the sense to be pretty plain. 2 Thessalonians 1, 12. Did I see that? 5 through 12. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be made worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. Since indeed God deems it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant rest with us to you who are afflicted 
when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God and upon those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you to, that our God may make you worthy of his call and may fulfill every good resolve and work of faith by his power. This is not about the end times. This is not about Jesus coming at the end of the world. This is, like the other letters of Revelation, about an imminent coming, about an imminent judgment, about people who must persevere in what have, they have been given. Persevere. Endure. The afflictions you're enduring right now because judgment will take place. This is not a text that says, and then in the end of times, you will see that in the judgment of all, you will be vindicated. It is about imminent coming. Likewise, 2 Timothy 1, 8-13. Do not be ashamed then of testifying to our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but take your share of suffering for the gospel and the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not in virtue of our works, but in virtue of his own purpose and the grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus ages ago and now has manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel I was appointed a preacher and he says, and therefore I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Again, perseverance, suffering, and a day that is coming. He's talking to Timothy about what God has, has entrusted to He will keep what God has entrusted to him about until that day. It isn't about the end of the world. This is secondary meaning. The primary meaning is imminent. Imminent coming. So you can see that Paul shares in mindset what John is speaking about in Revelation. Using different language, using different words, but the same fundamental message is being communicated. James chapter 4, 7 and 8. Be patient. So James 4, 7 and 8. Be patient therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient over it until it receives the early and the late rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That's not about the second coming. Same thing. James knows there is a coming, and it's at hand. The same mindset, same thinking. Uh, chapter, uh, the letter of, of uh, St. James, chapter 5, 7 and 8. Uh, likewise, 1 Peter 1, 3 and 9. 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, verses 3 and 9. 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are guarded through faith for salvation, 
ready to be revealed in the last time. Ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though, though now for a little while you may have to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which though perishable is tested by fire, may redound to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think that once you have a good grasp on these letters, they illuminate many of these other letters. So instead of keeping them kind of in a little corner on their own and not knowing what to do with them, they're actually very precious because they help us understand many of those passages that otherwise would remain cryptic. What revelation is he talking about? The second, you know, the coming, the, 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 the end time. I told you that some commentators thought that Peter truly believed that the second coming was at hand, that Jesus was coming. But that's not the case. Neither John and Revelation, nor Paul, nor James, they understand that something is about to happen, that the situation as it is cannot last, that they have forces hemming them from both sides. And because they're seen in the Old Testament and they know how the Lord used prophets in the Old Testament to announce victory against the enemies of Israel, so will it be in the New Testament. The last one I'll give you is 2 Peter 2, 1 through 16. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 16. And you will see how what is on the mind of St. Peter echoes what was in those letters. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their lic licentiousness, and because of them the way of truth will be reviled, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. From of old their condemnation has not been idle, and their destruction Destruction has not been asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of nether gloom to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven other persons, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction and made them an example to those who were to be ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the licentiousness of the wicked, for by what that righteous man saw and heard as he lived among them, he was vexed in his righteous soul day after day with their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge to the lust of the fighting passion and despise authority." You, you, you see what Peter is all. What, what is Peter doing here? He's telling them, just as before, there were false prophets. Expect them among you. And in the letters, we saw them: the Nicolaitans, those who followed Balaam, Jezebel. What is Peter doing? He's saying to them: conform yourself to the patterns that were given to us in the Old Testament. They were given for our instruction. Understand the signs of the time and understand how the Lord functions. Do not lose heart. For just as of old there were false prophets and judgment was set for them, just as of old God punished the angels in hell, just as he 
punish the world and only save Noah and the seven, what's the implication here? What was one of the main problems of those seven churches that we saw? They're small. They're facing big powers. Rome and the temple. What was Noah? One guy was... He, there were seven total. Building a boat in the middle of a plane. They were not by the seashore. You understand? We would walk by, see this guy building a boat in the middle of a plane. What do you think we would have thought? Exactly. And that's how the Romans looked at the Christians. They're crazy. You see why he's bringing that text? But again, his letter is illuminated by the context from Revelation. And he repeats it, just as Lot, who saw all the abomination of in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he was very vexed by them, right? just as those, those who are in those churches keeping the word of God, holding to what they have, amidst paganism and amidst persecution from the Jews and being vexed by them, what did God do? Two things. He punished Sodom and Gomorrah with a swift judgment and he saved them. He saved Lot. Does this suggest to you that the, the, the readers of this letter are to wait to the second coming before they see all this happen? No. The intention here is that it's coming. It's going to happen. Hold on. Be faithful. Trust. All those patterns brings us to the last point I'm going to make tonight. The power and the beauty of Revelation is that it illuminates, and you will see that more and more as we go through the rest of Scripture, and it's illuminated by it as any other book. But perhaps, more so than any other book, it shows us a pattern of the kingship of Jesus Christ. So that even though, in appearance, the church is weak and small, and hemmed by all sides by very powerful forces, and the believers are suffering, and their, case, and their cause suffers many setbacks, God is preparing His judgment. And it will happen. And it will be soon. You can take that and start to develop a new a prophetic spirit by which you apply that to your own time. And by a prophetic spirit, I do not mean that suddenly you start spewing out dates. That's not what I mean. I mean you start to see your life biblically. You start to see your life according to the patterns of the seven churches. You start to ask yourself a question, if I was in those churches, where would I be today? Is my church like one of those, and which one? You start to heed the advice that Christ gives in those letters, and you start to wait for his imminent coming. And I do not mean his second coming. I mean his judgment. For scripture does not lie nor deceive, and it will surely happen. And what is very important for us is to keep in mind the two aspects of the covenant. That in the covenant, those who are faithful shall be blessed. I'm not saying this to scare you. I'm saying this to root your hope in Scripture. 
For if you are faithful to that covenant, you will be blessed. That's his promise. And he signed his promise with his blood on the cross. And he will make it happen. And all glory is to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen. We have some time for questions. Yes. Uh, so the question is, how did they know there was an imminent coming? And where in the Old Testament it talks about the destruction of all Jerusalem? I'd refer you back to the study of Daniel and to Isaiah. This is a very long answer where we explain exactly why Jesus came in the fullness of time and what it means. And Daniel specifically, it is stated that the temple will be destroyed. So go back and read chapter 9 of Daniel and then go to that series where we went through the whole part where this was actually studied. Verse 10 of which chapter? Which book? Chapter 3, verse 10. Because you have kept my word of patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which is coming on the whole world, to try those who dwell upon the earth. This, again, has to be understood not in terms of physical keeping, but in terms of spiritual keeping. Because the hours of trial is going to be hard and harsh and can lead those to, be, to fall into temptation. It's actually the application of the Our Father. Do not lead us into temptation. I will keep you from that hour, meaning I will give you the graces sufficient for you to endure it and to be received in heaven. You must always understand that in light of the cross. It isn't about simply being physically safe. It is about being spiritually and ultimately reach heaven. He's basically assuring them that if they are faithful to him, he will get them to heaven. That's what he says. Yes. Very, yes, there are very few texts that go over the second coming. Mostly in, uh, in the mini apocalypses you will find in Mark, Ma Matthew, and Luke. And we've covered that also in one of the series where Jesus will speak about the destruction of Jerusalem and he switches over and talks a little bit about the second coming. But mostly you must understand the second coming as the eschatological application of the text. So you take what you hear now and you can say that at the end all that is going to happen and some more. Because of the relationship between the universe and the temple, which we already talked about, what the temple is versus the universe. So anything that happens in the temple of Jerusalem is a sacrament telling us about what happens to the, to the universe at the end of time. All right. And there are some passages where Christ says, and I will, when, the, when the Lord, when, when, when the Son of Man comes with his angels, he will send his angels and they will separate the goat from the sheep and put the goat on the left and the sheep on the right. Those are alluding to the second coming. But very few texts do. Yes. Dying with God on dining. dining, meaning receiving the Eucharist. It's not that it affects the eternal judgment. It means that it allows us to sit with him on his throne and be partakers of that judgment. Put differently, as we receive the Eucharist and as we are open to it and we are united with Christ, with Christ and our will is conformed to his, we will share in his judgment of the world. We will sit on his throne. That's what I was trying to allude to. Any other question? We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.